All right, episode 39 with my good friend David Kalmuski. David's a fantastic producer, mixer, songwriter, guitarist uh, from my neck of the woods, but now living in Nashville. He's been there for quite a few years now. He's worked with Journey, uh, Keith Urban, Megan Trainer, Justin Bieber, John Oates, uh, just to name just a few. And uh, we sat and chatted about his whole life. I think you're going to really like this one. This is David Kalmuski. <laughs> We're here with David Kalmuski, and uh, David, we've known each other. I'm trying to think, I don't know how long, but since we're... I'm going to say 25, no, more than that, dude. Since we're in our teens, at least. Listen, I met you, whether you remember this or not, my dad came to the Walters family home and or studio yeah. and recorded on one of the early Walters family records, and you and I hung out when you were like, when we were like 10 years old. Yeah. Wow. So I've known you 40 years. Well, I didn't have physically have a studio here until I was about 14 or 15. I remember being in your yeah. living room, maybe for yeah. a rehearsal or something. Been, yeah. And then and then you guys might have gone to a studio somewhere. Like what was the first Walters family record? Or like how old were you? We did some in Wingham. Um Yeah, at Ernie King's place. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think my dad might have played bass on one of those. Could have been. Yeah. Because that's that's kind of the first place I remember recording. Uh, I know we did some stuff at Shotgun. Remember that place? No, uh, it was in Brantford. Um, but that was later. I think it was Ernie King's. Yeah. Honestly, I think that there was a thing. I just remember, you know, like there was a someone my age. I was just tagging along, um, and I remember you and I hanging out. You were playing fiddle and drums. You were playing a little bit of drums back then, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's funny, I think there is where I got my bug to be an engineer. At Ernie sure. Kings. And I remember not being able to want to leave the console and, and watching. I remember, I remember watching and I can almost visually remember where the talk back button was on the console. And I don't remember what the console was. Um, you know, obviously an old analog console of some sort, but I remember it was a black desk i remember it being just dark black and i remember there being a talkback button that i hey used man to it was hit. a tiac with a with a tascam four track or it was yeah. an eight, eight track and uh and it's funny jay real and i yeah got uh ernie gave us a key for that studio when we were 16 when we got our driver's license wow and we would drive up to wingham on a friday night when ernie would close the store yeah. and we would bring sleeping bags and food and we would go down to that studio in the basement and we recorded the theme song for the uh, Canadian Olympic skaters champions on ice on a 45, you know, like <laughs> in Ernie King's basement, man. I mean, that was like, yeah, that was ground zero for all that stuff for me, for sure. Yeah. It's funny when you look back, you forget about certain things and then it's, there's a little trigger points when you talk to certain people and, and, uh, First of all, I I just want to say I I never had a chance to really tell you, but I'm super proud of you and super happy where you've gotten and and that you've you know been able to follow your dream and you're in Nashville now and you're you're the big time guy there and and engineering oh, producing. Oh no, man, yeah, not at all. Are. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you're doing really fantastic, and I'm I'm super super proud of you. So I'm uh, doing just as well as we've all all done in Canada. I'm just in an environment where there's just more 
musicians here than in Stratford, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and anywhere in Kitchener and anywhere else, it's, it's the same, it's the same thing, but thank you again. But like, I'm one of us, you know, like we are all doing the exact same thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I made different decisions. I was still single. I didn't have a family. I wasn't really tied to anything. And I was still on the road when I was coming to Nashville with you a lot, you know, yeah. like playing with McCoy and Landry and the Wilkinsons and stuff and, and started dipping my nose in Nashville with making those records here. Yeah. And uh, at one point just never left, you know, just because I saw all of that opportunity and just all these studios. I mean, it's like in, in a two block radius, all the greatest studios in the world, you know? Yeah. Uh, like that's, I'm just like a kid in a candy store here. So obviously my attention uh, and drinking from this well uh, and, and, you know, honestly being a small fish in a big pond is, is, is really comfortable for me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Let's, let's just kind of go back and start at the beginning and, and since oh, we've kind of gone back a little ways and, and chat about uh, how you started and now your, your dad was uh, a pretty great musician and, and, uh, was he basically your influence and in how you, why you got started in the music industry or is you just kind of had that bug in you? Yeah. I mean, he grew his, his dad, my grandfather, Jojo Kalmuski was a sax player for the CJCS orchestra in Stratford and, uh, in the Tony Cryan orchestra and they back up like uh, Louis Armstrong and people that would pass through in the thirties and forties and, and, you know, play the dance halls, the dance hall circuit. Yeah. Um, and so my dad grew up in that in the in the you know late 40s early 50s and by the time he was in high school he and Richard Manuel later from the band and John Till later from Janis Joplin's band they were just high school friends that had a, a you know that was a, a band called the Rebels in Stratford that would rehearse in my grandparents basement you know my dad's basement when they were kids yeah. and uh they opened for Ronnie Hawkins at the Stratford Arena. They were all teenagers. Yeah. And Richard Manuel got a standing ovation twice as an opening band. And it kind of pissed off Ronnie Hawkins. Uh, it's, it's, um, it, it's documented in Levon Helms' This Wheel's on Fire. Actually, Levon, this is a little chapter, a little story in there where Levon tells the story about the first time they heard Richard Manuel. And basically, Ronnie, uh, you know, that night, hired my dad and, and Richard Manuel and, and John Till and the Rebels to go to Arkansas when they were teenagers. I think everybody was 16, so they were of age to travel. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's great. There's all kinds of history and books and stuff about that. They stole Ronnie Hawkins' Cadillac one night and got pulled over by the police and ended up in jail in Memphis. And <laughs> uh, they broke into Elvis Presley's... Uh, uh, you know, Graceland while Elvis was shooting Blue Hawaii and got caught by the, you know, the security. And it's just like, yeah. they were just a wild bunch of teenagers. But you think about being 16 to 17 years old and, and having that experience, you know? Yeah. Uh, by the time I was born, you know, he had kind of gone through the Woodstock in the 60s and worked at Bearsville Studios. He worked in Nashville in the, in the 60s with Cowboy Jack. He was in a band, The Great Speckled Bird, with Ian and Sylvia from, yeah. from out west, which... Uh, ended up working with Bob Dylan and Neil Young. And they were just part of like a real folk hippie scene that um, 
was between Woodstock, New York and Stratford, Ontario, quite honestly. There was a, a real connection between John and, and Richard Manuel, my father. And then uh, I came along and, and, uh, and Dad had settled in Stratford. We had a studio in the back of the house. So my earliest, earliest memories of being a toddler are literally crawling around like a little, you know, uh, console and a tape recorder and, and gear and a drum kit set up and, and, um, and recording and doing overdubs. And, and uh, it's by the time I could speak and ask for things, I wasn't asking for toy cars and, and, uh, and toys. I was asking for tape recorders and guitars and speakers and things. So yep. my bedroom at six years old, I had a reel to reel. I had a little a crappy Telecaster and a film projector that we put a jack into to, to turn into a guitar amp. So I was, I was like super nerding out and, you know, teching out stuff when I was a, a kid, you know, like a, a, like a really young kid. That's pretty neat. I mean, it, I think it's, it's rare that you find someone that at a, such an early age defines what their life is, right? Yeah, I never had to like guess or choose. I do also remember being in school a little bit older, you know, probably in just grade school, kind of staring out the window, couldn't wait to get back home, just like thinking about the studio, which was the back room of our house, or, or even the, the stuff in my bedroom. Like I just, I wasn't present and accounted for as a kid unless I was making music and banging around. And by the time I was 11, I was a decent enough musician to play with 15 and 16 year olds in the neighborhood. And so I was just the little pipsqueak and they were teaching me how to smoke cigarettes and corrupting me. And, and, uh, you know, I was 12 in a band with, with 15 year olds. And, uh, by the time I was 15, I was playing in all the local clubs. Yep. And by the time I was literally my 16th birthday, I jumped in a van and went on the road and I was in rock bands and we played six nighters in Northern Ontario. And, and I think, I don't think we traveled out of Ontario when I was 16. I think we went up to like marathon and North Bay and Sudbury and Timmins and, and, uh, you know, the first trip sort of further West into Winnipeg and stuff was maybe when I was 17 or 18, but I, you know, that was it. I, ne I've never really, there's never been a transition for me. It's literally from when I was six or seven years old till now. Yeah. It's, and I'm, I'm sure you you probably went through a lot of the same thing I did. And being a young musician, lots of times you're in a band with much older people um, until you hit until until a certain age. I remember when that transition happened, where I was all of a sudden I was always the youngest guy in the band, and then and the transition into yeah we're all about the same age. Then yeah. the transition to. I think I'm the oldest guy here. <laughs> I don't think I'm cool enough to tour with some of the artists I produce. You know, I mean, I don't know if I'd get the guitar gig anymore. Oh, I'm sure you would, but it's a, it's a different feeling. Like I, I always yeah. felt when I was younger and you're, you're hanging around, uh, gosh, I was, I was, I think I'm still in my teens or very early twenties, but probably my late teens uh, I was doing some events for CKGL and, and they had like, the roadshow band with Wendell Ferguson and, oh, uh, sure. and all those the old guys. guys. Yeah. <laughs> Which at, the, at the time I thought, you know, I felt they were the older guys. Right. I mean, sure. I looked, I looked up to them. Um, and that was uh code of the West and yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember all, all that. Yeah. yeah. And CKGL would, 
Vic Foley at there would, he would hire me as kind of a, I haven't, I have no idea why, because I wasn't part of Cold West, but he would just hire me to be the fiddle player, an extra person in the band. Um, sure. And I would show up and do these things, but I was always like, I, I felt comfortable sitting in and I was no problem hanging in and, and, and playing the parts and doing everything. But I always felt so uncomfortable. Like I wasn't quite old enough to be their buddy, but yeah, there's like I said, there's a little bit of a social disconnect when you're that young. Yeah. You know, it, it goes away in your twenties and everybody's just a bit, you know, it's kind of a level social playing field. But yeah, when you're I mean, when I was 16, I was playing with 30 and 40 year olds in Stratford. I was playing with some of my father's generation, you know. Yeah. Um uh and and it, but the nice thing was there's also some mentorship, like some of the older musicians, some of them have passed away now in Stratford. I had a friend named Ronnie Weir, who was a bass player in Stratford, played in all the bands that I was, you know, 15 and 16, and they were all 30 or 40. And Ronnie would make me cassette tapes of Albert Lee and Vince Gill and like turn me on to guitar players that, you know, he he had his ears on Nashville and different stuff that I just, you don't have access to in Stratford or you, you know, I wasn't as worldly as these guys. Yeah. So, um, he'd send me the new Bonnie Rayet record when it would come out or just like really cool music and always be musing me with cassettes and things to listen to that would take me out of my sort of rebel teenage bedroom where I was mostly listening to, you know, Black Sabbath and Van Halen, you know? And, and so that's an, a really cool, interesting mix and merge and the diversity that that older crowd gave me and you and and a lot of us i think um gave us the chops to be able to to sit in and play on a lot of different styles and genres and and not not just respect it from afar but actually be a part of it you know yeah yeah and you and you think back at that age you don't i don't think you realized how much you were soaking in right i think you were you were taking it in and you were learning, but I think now when you look back, it's really, man, I, I learned a lot in those years without really knowing that I was learning a lot. Well, and you think about how hard you work at it when you're really, really young and you don't have like a studio and a life and an agenda and a, and a, and a checkbook and all of that stuff during COVID, especially when things shut down, I was like, I'm going to practice. I'm going to, I need to be a better drummer. You know, I've got drum kits set up here. Nobody's coming into studio. I'm going to practice you know, I'm just going to get a little better. I'm going to practice some foot autonomy. I'm going to do my paradiddles. And I go out there and, you know, practice for 10 minutes and then, you know, feel like I did something. And then, you know, two weeks later, I I would only did it five times for 10 minutes each. And I'm not really that much of a better drummer. And then I'm like, I used to go sit in my room on a Saturday afternoon at noon and play guitar all day. Uh, until the evening, you know, until the wee hours, like we'd practice or just sit in our world for, you know, uh, eight or 10 hours a day, every day as a young musician. Yeah. Uh, and we do that now, but our skill set is a lot wider. I do that now mixing and tracking and overdubbing and having a studio and engineers and, and interfacing with manufacturers and technology and endorsements and, uh, you know, emailing all of the relationships associated with making records from managers to A&R people to, you know, yeah. it's your world gets so, so much bigger that we don't, we don't have the time to 
really hone in and master things and, you know, get the same kind of exponential growth that we had in those younger years. So that definitely formed who, who we were as players. Yeah. I, and I really miss those times. I think, you know, even thinking back now and, uh, you know, I was lucky, like I mentioned, I think when I was 14 or 15, um, my grandpa was such a great builder and influence in my life as far as music goes. And, and he would just kind of do anything for you. Right. And, and we were making albums and, seeing that I had an interest in all the studio stuff. And I don't even remember the conversation, but I remember all of a sudden it's like, and this is something we've always done. It's like, okay, let's, uh, let's build a studio. And, and before you knew it, you know, there's wood coming in and, and, Crazy. and you're framing up. And, and I remember I'm just, I'm sitting in the same room right now. And it's, it's, I remember framing this up with my grandpa when I was unbelievable, 14 years old. Um, yeah. and you just went and you'd, and you did it right. And all of a sudden, you know, I think back at the, the days where you, you didn't have YouTube to, to quickly, you know, figure something out. I mean, there's so many times now I get a piece of, oh, okay, how do you do that? Just okay. Let me just use the YouTube this instead of sitting down and really figuring it out. You don't have time to, to, to do that. You just like, okay, I got to figure out, oh, okay, this is how you do it. And bam, where you go. Um, but then back then, you know, you, you had kind of a manual for something and, but you'd have to, You'd get a, I remember getting a Roland 707 drum machine and you just look at it and kind of, okay, I have to figure out how you make a pattern, how you turn, you know, how the MIDI works. You got to figure and out. You'd always, you always, you know, rely on the wisdom of the wisest person in the room, Yeah. you know? And, and so for your grandfather, he knew how to build, he knew how to frame. He explains, you know, the, that the 16 inch centerings were for, for a reason. And, and, you know, here's how you wire something and, and, and it's, um, yeah, that and and sitting around a piece of gear, I, I also remember like the first sound tool system, um, you know, trying to get it to sync to tape and nobody really knowing how to do that and just kind of staying up all night and playing with time code and striping the tape. And then the moment you get it to lock, it's it's not just a celebration. You're the guy. Yeah. You feel like you're the guy now that can dump vocals over to this computer and comp like on four tracks and, and manipulate and nudge stuff around and then fly it back. And so it's, um, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, the, the world has definitely changed as to how we can learn. And it's why we've got six year olds, but you know, on YouTube playing, you know, virtuosically, it's like, where did the 10,000 hours go? Well, they got to start, they got to cut to the chase, you know, and genetically, I mean, that's just an obvious evolution of the human species when you see some of these kids playing. And I think they've, uh, they've always been there it just now yeah. that you get to see them. I mean, we didn't that's have the true. chance to see them. I think there's always been those weird, I wouldn't call them freaks, but, you know, we, that's what we call certain musicians or <laughs> beyond, you know, yeah, kind of, man. that's a freak I, musician I, or something. And, and I think they've always been there. You just never, if they weren't in your circle, you never true. knew about them. True. I guess it's like weather, you know, tornadoes and CNN and news. And, and if anything happens on any corner of the globe, you get to see it right away. Yeah. Yeah. And like ridiculous genius definitely, you know, goes viral just because. Yeah. So back when you were touring up Northern Ontario, doing all that type of thing, what did that lead into what that, what was your next step kind of after being on the road and, and at 16 or so, what, what was school like then? Were you, were you, in school or were you 
Uh, you school. know, it's this like I don't want to brag on this like kids that are listening to this stay in school, man, you know, whatever. Uh, but I have a grade seven education. Like I, I just never really went to high school. Um, I showed up on picture day once uh, like <laughs> and, awesome. and and so there was a, a common room committee at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And so you had the chess club and the AV club. There was a, a committee called the common room committee. And the, what the common room was, was a room in the basement of Northwestern that's now a gym or something. Yeah. That was a cigarette smoking room. So I was in the cigarette smoking club, uh, which was just, we listened to ACDC and smoked cigarettes. And this was like a school sanctioned <laughs> club, you know, yeah. where all kinds of nefarious uh, activity would take place. And so I was on that committee. And uh, I showed up for picture day. So I am in a, in a yearbook somewhere. But Northern Ontario, being in a teenager, you know, playing in some rock bands. Um, when I'd come back to Stratford, I'd play in some country bands and some, some like local more things that were connected, I guess, to the club scene. So I was kind of growing those chops. But, you know, when I was 16, I found a recording studio in Listowel, which was Canada Sound Recordings. And uh, I would take my high school band there and I met the the studio owner, Bill Knapp, would give me a key, kind of like Ernie King did with Jay, you know, and we'd record, I'd go in and record. And, and so I, that was always a part of my life. And even when I was on the road up north, I had a little Tascam four track that went upstairs with me with a hot plate. And I'd yeah. cook ramen noodles and, and make beats, you know, the modern day, the old day equivalent of making beats, you know, I'd do these instrumental tracks and just write songs and and record in my little hotel room as we traveled around. And then when we'd, you know, come to port, I guess, or land somewhere, because I lived in Edmonton, and I lived in, uh, you know, uh, Calgary, and I lived in Vancouver and White Rock, and, you know, just kind of wherever the band was based for a lot of years, uh, I would just be, you know, Kitchener for a long, long time for me. Um, then I'd find a studio, like a real studio, and I'd go and record with whoever we were with. So I always wanted to produce the bands I was working with. I always encouraged original music, but I just didn't really break into the, uh, you know, the national recording acts, I think until I actually landed in Kitchener and then became a part of the scene that you and I met in, which was sort of a a Rick Hutt-centric scene based around Cedar Tree. I played in Jamie Warren and and Kenny Munshaw, Lonnie Wallace, actually, too. I was in Lonnie Wallace's band. I don't even know what year that was, but, um, you know, out of that directly, you and I ended up in John Landry's band together probably the end of the 90s, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. 99, 98? Somewhere in there, yeah. So 22 years ago, wow. crazy. Um, and and then, uh, then that was a great blend of just always kind of being a part of artists' recordings and records. And I would take a few of the, you know, those bands, you know, I got to, as you did too, we both got to produce Jason McCoy and record a bunch of stuff, uh, you know, between all of us and Scott Baggett. And take part in the McCoy records. And, and, and then I, you know, got to produce... The Wilkinsons and Chris Cummings and just all the Canadian acts that I was, you know, originally kind of hired as a guitar player. Um, my reputation and our reputation, they just, we became an option as a producer. And, and um, 
had some success in accolades and and uh, and did stuff. And in in some of those Canadian records, you know, um, I'd start to dip my toes in Nashville when I was allowed to. If the if the material was CanCon and like the Wilkinsons wrote a lot of stuff, which was great, so we could do yeah. some CanCon records in Nashville and. Um, and then that, you know, the, by the end, uh, by the early 2000s, then I was like, I wasn't, you know, I was starting to keep a place here in Nashville in about 2005, oh, yeah. you know, um, and still touring with, you know, Wilkinson's Roadhammers, McCoy, Carolyn Don Johnson, uh, just all the people that we all, it's funny when, you know, when you're one of us, we've all worked with all of those people eventually at some point. Yeah. Cause there's just not enough work with one of them. That's to right. Sustain you for the year. So you end up playing here, you end up playing and there's not, I mean, there's, it's a small pool of guys when it comes down to it. It's, it's just, it's kind of like Nashville, but it's like if Nashville were an entire country from coast to coast. Yeah. So I remember, you know, like, you know, John diamond, you know, our, our dear, dear friend would be like, you know, in Nashville, we've got like a 10 and a two and a six or, you know, Monday we're at Blackbird and Tuesday we're at Ocean Way and Wednesday we're at Sound Emporium and Thursday we're at Addiction. It would be like, hey, Johnny, can you do a session on Tuesday? And he's like, oh, no, I'm in Saskatoon yeah, recording, you know, and then it's like, but I could do Thursday. And it's like, well, what about Friday? No, I'm in St. John, you know, like he's got his base on a plane because he's getting sessions pretty much around town and town is Canada. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, uh, it's just, you just get somebody when they're available on the day. That that... I think my peak, and I don't know what yours is, and we probably all have a very similar thing. Uh, you know, I think I counted 11 acts one summer. You know, I had 11 binders of charts. And it was, you know, like Diane and Landry and Kenny and uh, Jamie and just, you know, like, so uh, it was, there were 11 different sets of charts. And that was a you know unbelievably busy summer of you know yeah uh, or a year of 70 to 100 dates but it was across 11 artists and you know uh, when you get to nashville you can do that with one artist exactly and it, and you keep busy the whole year uh because there's so many places to play that's always been my um i'm not sure what the right word i just i've always been bummed out the fact that and I, I know you've we've been on gigs where you, you go to a festival somewhere and you're up on stage with somebody and you might've ran the tunes the day before or in the trailer uh, that day and you go up and you play the show. It's always great. Um, and we always would get it done, but it would be never like, you know, the American band would roll up and they come out and they'd be so polished, right? Cause they've been, They've just done 800 shows in a row. Um, yeah. And it was always so frustrating for me as Canadian artists to, to try to compete against that because there wasn't a budget to, to sit and rehearse for a week before and, uh, and all that. So it was always, you know, I've always saw that. It was like frustrating. But if people knew what we actually just pulled off, um, yeah, we next. were always flying by the seat of our pants. It's funny. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't really been on the road now in a l very long time. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I still have dreams. I still have like anxiety dreams where I'm standing at the side of the stage. I'm about to walk on, you know, it's usually an A-list band out there. It's maybe the Ryman or something really important in the dream. 
and I'm realizing that I haven't learned the work tape. Like I haven't even heard the material and they're, you know, and we're walking on. That's, that's like some people dream that they're naked or they forgot their pants or their teeth are falling out. I have like the, the side guy fear dream of not being prepared or not remembering the hook, you know, or not remembering. Cause we were kind of traumatized by that, especially, you know, being the lead guys, like we got to set it up, man, sometime, you know? Yeah. That's strangest feeling when you 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 look down at the name of the song and you know you have the intro you just don't know it's a blank just, yeah it's just like i have and no you idea. got the head you know <laughs> like you've got the hook <laughs> but there is something about the thrill of that i really miss sure yeah You're yeah it's crap in your pants but you just waited for that first downbeat to kind of just it, it seems to kind of sneak in most of the time you yeah. know uh I have one or two horror stories over decades of, of traveling where the, it just didn't come, you know, and, 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 or the capos on the wrong thing. And I'm the guy setting it up or whatever. I mean, I'm sure we all have that oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. But that was fun. I mean, it was, it's, uh, I think probably as you were transitioning out of the live stuff, uh, doing the touring stuff as much, I basically was too, as we started our theater here at the property and, and then sure, I just yeah. wasn't available uh, in the summertime for the gigs, I was doing shows here. So I just started not being called cause I was never available. Right. So I just kind of left that. I haven't really gone into that scenes since then, but, uh, you know, I, I certainly, uh, enjoyed it a lot. Um, uh, and, and I feel for, for everybody now, especially with, with everything going on with the COVID thing. And it's and, rough, man. Yeah. I mean, a lot of our friends uh, are just not touring this summer, and a lot of people are really reinventing themselves as well, too. So, you know, I'm lucky, super lucky. I was actually mixing two records. And I had a full summer that canceled on me, but I had a bunch of work sort of queued up that's starting to thin out now as people are starting to kind of poke the bear at getting back to t- sort of figuring out, you know, if we can recover some of what we had postponed. So yeah, um, super, super lucky to have just, uh, you know, kept my head down and, and had some work to, to, to burn through this and, and we're starting to reschedule and trying to be really, really safe and respectful to everybody. Yeah. Makes sense. So talk about your actual move to Nashville and what made you do that and, and what that was like for you. I know you saying you were, you were going kind of back and forth, but what, what was the kind of deciding factor and what made that final decision for you? Yeah. Well, by the time I was like, had a main stay in Nashville, like a, a regular place to crash, I bought a car here. Uh, you know, I had some friends here. Like it kind of started to feel more and more like home Yeah. and I was bringing work here. So I, you know, I'd come to Nashville and I'd hire a bunch of Nashville musicians and I'm their you know, like I I'm entering on the level. I get to be in a nice studio. I'm the producer. Um, and it started out like we had talked about where I had always kind of been a part of a band like you, Mm. we'd produce a band and then we go out and tour. So when I was in the Wilkinson's, I, we were doing records, I was producing them and then I'd go out and I'd be the road manager and the guitar player. It was just sort of like, yeah, you know, being all, all encompassed. And so residually as an artifact of, of doing that work here, while I was working on a record, I'd, my phone would start to ring and 
Na people in Nashville would call me to mix a record and or come play guitar on another record uh, or cut some vocals or, you know, I edit like anything. You're just like the studio stuff and all the skill sets that I had. So I wasn't necessarily returning right back to Canada after, uh, you know, uh, working on one of my records. I was hanging around for a little extra playing on other stuff. And that just got actually really big and really busy to the point where I, um, I rented a cottage from Paul Scolton, who uh, was at the County Q. And it had a, a control room enough for like a little console and a rack of gear and a little tiny tracking room that was not big enough for a drum kit, but like just some guitar amps. And yeah. it was kind of my first sort of mainstay. And honestly, once I had that room, and I could do like all of my work here. I still toured, you know, um, but instead of my return tickets always coming to Toronto, I just always kind of returned to Nashville. I had a car, I had a little studio room here. Yeah. Um, I had, I lived, I rented Jason and Shereen McCoy's house for 15 years, man. I lived in that house. They just actually sold it this year. I was still there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, the community just kind of won me over. I, there's so many Canadians here that I was connected right away. You know, I mean, everybody, you know, that comes here, we, we all know, you know, Carolyn, Don Johnson and Pat Conroy and so many people that there's already kind of a community. Yeah. I was um, producing Emerson drive sort of early before I lived here and Danik and, and all of those guys were really established here. So I actually crashed at Danik's house for a while, sort of in the early years. Actually, like super early Emerson Drive when they all had a, a little condo. They all, like four of them lived in one little place on air mattresses. That, yeah. But they'd go on the road for 100, 200 days a year, and I had a key. So I would just come down and crash for free and just kind of like yeah. house sit for, for the Emerson Drive guys. Um, you know, I, that's the thing is, is like going to L.A. or New York or, or other places, like not knowing anybody always sort of felt like, you know, I would get in and do the work I was there for. I'd be a tourist for a day or two, but I wasn't connected to anything and I'd leave. Whereas in Nashville, mm -hmm. being, you know, in the scene, in the circle we were in, um, I'd get into, I'd get into uh, Nashville to do some work and my lunch car to be full, you know, the whole time I'm here. And it would be, you know, just catching up with people and, and, I think that that sense of community and connection just made it really, really safe. And so it felt like a hometown pretty quick. And all this music, man, like Monday nights, the time jumpers and, you know, Tuesday nights uh, would be Mike Henderson and, uh, you know, and, yeah. and uh, just wow. Like I could go sit at Douglas corner, a tiny little club and, and just, you know, uh, watch Bonnie Rayet sit in with Delbert McClinton, you know, I'm, it's just so over the top music, yeah. you know, that that one too, you know, and, and still wins for me. I'm still, I'm still enamored by it. I Nashville is exciting, man. It's um, I, I, I love this town. I love this community. It's the people. Yeah. I think it's out of being in LA or New York or Nashville. Uh, I mean, they're all different. Uh, totally different, but you would see that Nashville would feel way more like home, um, you know, in a, in a good place for you to settle in for sure. Yeah. So how did the, the studio in their addiction, uh, how did that story all come about? I've heard 
little stories from people here and here, but I never really heard the story from you and how how this all came about. Well, you know, I'll try to, you know, it's it, it traces back to the beginning of time. It's funny, you know, like I can, I like these little exercises where I, I can actually pinpoint moments in my life where if I had stopped to tie my shoe, I wouldn't have met somebody and yeah. then my whole life would be different. You know, yeah. I literally stopped to tie my shoe and met, uh, you know, my girlfriend at the time who I lived with for five years, you know, and, and so we tell that story. I feel like Nashville is very much like that. You know, it's like this extreme tapestry. You work on so much music with so many people, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, musicians and producers and, you know, just demos and songs and projects and albums. It's just so, so interconnected that um, it kind of led me to be recommended to work with... um, Madison Kane, you know, uh, a young artist who was like uh, singing and songwriting and doing a bunch of stuff in town. Yeah. And she she was like 14 or 15 and came over to my studio. And I think I just made her more comfortable than um, a lot of people. And I really got into like shooting mics out because I'm a super nerd. Yeah. And I set up like eight mics. I'd never worked with it before. And and um, and I, I spent, you know, we're you and I are mixers, so I also spent some time like dialing stuff in and, you know, making the the tracks sound awesome for the headphones. They were just like rough tracking sessions, and and yeah. and I'm pretty quick, so I don't know. She was just sort of new and hadn't had a lot of studio experiences, and uh, we just hit it off as as like you know working chemistry and she was taking her work tapes home of the stuff we were doing and and uh didn't even you know she told me her dad was a musician but uh you know so is everybody you know in nashville or whatever too you know and so she'd come back in the next day and go my dad wanted to know who mixed this and i said well it's just a rough but like i did you know or whatever and she's like it's like he thinks it's amazing and like the vocal sound we're getting is spot on and and like the comps are really great and like I told him how, you know, how well this is going and he wants to come in and hang out. And so John, Jonathan Kane is her dad, came to the studio and sat on my back couch in my tiny little cottage in the back of the room. And I had no idea who he was. Like, I just didn't put two and two together. I knew who Jonathan Kane was, but he's like, hi, my name's John. I'm Maddie's dad, you know? And, and so we hung out for a day. We recorded some vocals. I played him. He, he wanted to nerd out with me. He wanted to hear the shootout session. So I pulled up the session where we sang on seven or eight different mics. And I listened to a few different compressors. And, and yeah. he's like, man, you and I have the same ears. We like all the same stuff, man. I would have, like absolutely pick the same things. And, and he came in the next day. It happened really quick. And he was like, listen, my band uh, is doing a record. And uh, man, you're you're just so great with vocals and we've got a new singer. I'm, you know, um, would you cut vocals with us? You know, like our, you know, the producer we're working with is really busy. He's got like nine records on his plate and we need to hand this thing in. And so I was like, sure, man, you know, absolutely. And it was kind of in passing as we were walking out. Um, it's funny. It all kind of happened simultaneously where I just said to him, you know, what, what's the name of your band? And he just kind of looked at me and I could, and John is my dear friend now. And and so 
I, I could see the enjoyment in his face, <laughs> the little smirk, the little twinkle in his eye when he, you know, got to look at me and say, Journey. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, like you know, Journey. Uh, and I'm like immediately thinking, like, are you in some weird trivia band? <laughs> and I'm like, John, John, Jonathan Kane. Wow, this is Jonathan Kane from Journey. You know, and so that's kind of how we met, yeah. you know. Wow. Uh, working on his daughter's stuff. And he and we did the whole journey uh, vocal session in my tiny little cottage. And I bring this rock star entourage, Neil Sean and 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 John Kane, and, and they'd roll into town uh, with their entourage of Maseratis and stuff and then come into my tiny little cottage, you know, and just kind of look around and go, should we go to a real studio? You know, like, um, <laughs> Just kind of not making fun of me, but yeah. you know, whatever, man. I, I just I had a little room set up. Um, things advanced with the band's journey and my relationship with Kevin Shirley, who was the producer on that stuff. Kevin had a John Hyatt record and a, I think a Joe Bonamassa record. He just had like six records on his plate, and um, and John and I had become such good friends, and I had, was mixing a lot of stuff. And I, they asked me to, with Kevin Shirley kind of listening in, asked me to do some test mixes of that Journey Eclipse record. Yeah. And so we picked one song. I obsessed over it. I mixed the shit out of it, handed handed it in, and and they, I got carte blanche and and got hired to mix and master that Journey Eclipse record. So I was kind of coming up in the ranks. And then you know. Um, John and I, through that whole process, we went into a real studio. We blocked off quad studios and I mixed that in the Neve room. And, and um, basically, we just, over the vicinity of working on that record, John was moving to Nashville, yeah. uh, bringing his family. He had this big studio in California with his console. And uh, there was this little property that's right here that I found because I was in the lived in the neighborhood. I lived six doors six doors down at McCoy's place, um, and we were talking about just buying this little cottage and just he putting a little grand piano in it to have a writing room, and me having a little mix room or something. But then this property came up and there was a a big conference room on the back. It was actually the Tennessee Drug Awareness Council, yeah. so it was rehab, um, basically. And it had this big kind of tracking room looking entity on the back of it. And it was pretty exciting and really cheap for back in the day. Go imagine, uh, you know, Berry Hill, Nashville property being cheap, but it was. Yeah. And uh, John was like, let's buy this thing, man. Let's do, let's do this. And, you know, John's bank account was a little different than mine, yeah. you know, as you can imagine. So I'm like, well, I'm good for like one of the rooms. And he was like, look, man, I, you know, I think we build our dream studio. We, we got, we, you know, we figured that if we're going to do this thing and break ground, John had, you know, 200 tour dates on the calendar through 2010 and 2011. Yeah. And so we made a plan. We got together with Chris Huston, who like recorded Led Zeppelin two and the who, and, and he's built a lot of the great rooms in Nashville. He built the, the big boy room at the sound kitchen in Franklin. And, and uh, I've always been a real fan of that room and, and Chris as a person, he's amazing. Um, we, you know, we got together, we designed the whole thing from, from the ground up, the plan, the plans had 11 revisions of the plans. 
we broke ground in, in at the beginning of 2011 and we finished it mid 2012 and uh cheap trick was my first client the first band i recorded in here um emerson drive was the full first sort of full length record that yeah. we did in here uh so you know my homage to my canadian brethren and heritage and it's pretty amazing to think that we've been here almost a decade now that's great what a interesting story i mean it it's like you said, it just wants you tie your shoe and and then, you know, you could have. Yeah, man, it's just all so connected. And and so my friend Kim Tribble always says, you know, Kim, right? Yeah. Uh, Kim's like, hey, I keep checking my mailbox, man. And, I, you know, I don't see any money. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, I, I hooked you up with Madison Kane, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, but Hannah hooked me up with you. Don't I give him the money? You know, it's like kind of this little <laughs> joke, you know, yeah, this yeah. joke of connections you know it, it's um it goes all the way back you know it, it really does um i well i had a studio at mccoy's place and like a little working area right in the house and the water heater blew up oh, yeah. and exploded the ceiling and the place was unlivable and needed to be renovated and that forced me out into the neighborhood driving door to door looking for a little studio room to work out yeah you know, and so like I can keep re rewinding on the story. And then I met Paul Skolton at County Q, who is like the patron saint of Nashville. He's just a real champion of engineers and talent and musicians and producers. Rented me a room that I couldn't really afford so I could trade some guitar work and some I traded some engineering work for him to have that room. Yeah. And, you know, and and the reason why. I met those journey guys was kind of like being on that campus and, and getting introduced to Madison Kane. So, you know, you take, you pull one of those little cards out and the house of cards falls down, you know, I mean, it's, it's all so intertwined and connected. It's pretty amazing. Well, you know, if it wasn't that route, it would have been another route. It just, you just don't know what, which route it would have been, but that's, that's right. just the, the vein that you end up going down. It's just my story, right? Like it's just the story I have. But, yeah. No, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah. So when you're in the cottage uh, recording there, what, what what were you recording on? What did you have for gear there? I had like one great rack, you know, that I had like a, uh, I had a 1073 for vocal. I had a great vocal pass. So I had a 1073 and my ADL CL 1500 and a Manly Vox box. Yeah. Just trying to think of some of the gear that stayed with me, you know. Um, and, uh, I was I didn't have a console. I had a control surface. I had a control 24. I had a, you know, Pro Tools uh, HD Excel 3 rig. Yeah. Uh, I had a couple of nice microphones. Um, and I got in early with the company Mic Tech, who is a very uh, kind of an unknown global mic company. They don't, have, you know, as far as Canada goes, but they're a hometown Nashville thing. And Mike Ketchell, um, I just, I got to meet him early and go over to the factory and, and listen to stuff and, and kind of alpha test some original hardware. And so uh, I love those microphones and I still, it's funny. I mean, we shot out a bunch of uh, mics um, just recently, you know, with some A-list artists and I'll put, I've, you know, I'm fortunate enough now to have some of the classic, ridiculously almost unattainable microphones. Yeah. And we'll put the mic techs up and they just sound pretty great every time, but sometimes they'll win, you know? And, and so I had a mic tech CV four that was kind of my main thing. Um, and I had a U 47 that, uh, 
was kind of like a to- like the classic vibe, right? Yeah. But like for the modern vocal, I was recording on a, on a Mike Tech CV4, and I had all my guitar nerd stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so I had lots of amps and guitars and 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 things and and, uh, but yeah, pretty humble gear list, you know. And moving into the studio you're in now, uh, let's talk a little bit about which and you got a crap load of gear, I know, but. Uh, Talk yeah. about kind of your base kind of set up there. Well, it is a little crazy. I've mm-hmm. built my dream mix room over the last decade and I've collected gear and I've sold cars. And like I, I said to you before we started rolling, if you come to my house, I have a table and a lamp, yeah. you know, and a bottle of Perrier and a plant. That's it. You know, every, my focus, uh, you know, I, I'm Nashville is such a great place for gear. So John's console in Studio A is a Trident TSM that was the TSM at the record plant Sausalito's uh, yeah. Studio B. So Aerosmith, Fleetwood Mac, Jefferson Airplane, of course, Journey, Hart, uh, Allman Brothers, all recorded on that console. It's kind of a famous, amazing rock and roll history desk. Uh, and I've, I've never been like a resident of a studio you know, I've, I've worked in a lot of different studios, but I've never been on the same console every day, day in and day out, uh, now for a decade, but even back then for an entire year or even for an entire three months, you know, I think the longest residency I ever had, I rented the Neve room at quad for three weeks, you know, in a row. Um, so I got really familiar and fell in love with the EQs and the preamps on that console. And some of it was failing and I hired a tech and, and we started to rebuild some of it. And I found a parts console on, uh, through a, a gear broker, a local gear broker for really cheap because it was like they were going to, the idea was to throw the frame in a dumpster and to send all the modules and parts to Nashville to just save on shipping costs. Yeah. And then something happened where the gear broker uh, had somebody that wanted to buy the console all intact and already paid the shipping. And, and it ended up in, anyway, this, this desk ended up in Nashville. The, the person who originally agreed to buy it bailed. I got a call from the broker saying, remember that desk that you were going to buy for parts? Well, it's here in Nashville. And rather than us throw the frame in the dumpster and just give you the modules, you should come look at this thing. It's in amazing. In fact, it was in way better shape than John's. It's it's unbelievable, actually. Yeah. And that's my mixing desk. I actually called Jonathan. He was going to buy it. Like I called him and said, "Hey, I found a parts console. You need to buy this. You know, here's the contact info." And so I actually called John and said, "Dude, you're not getting. You know." not getting your parts console. I just bought the, the, the Trident TSM for the mix room. And, uh, and it, it's my desk and, and I've mixed everything and overdubbed everything. And, and, uh, I, you know, and now I track on a TSM in a, and I mix on a TSM in, in B. And so like, and since then I've bought a, a Trident Flexi mix console that, you know, were, was designed for queen to record killer queen in the remote trucks. I'm, I'm a total Trident nerd. Yeah. Um, so that's the main state. Sorry, that's a long ramble. No. Uh, that's the main staple of this room is the Trident desk. Uh, and then there was a 
kind of a bit of a fire sale for House of David, which is David Briggs, the piano player for Elvis Presley, sold a bunch of gear from his studio. And I got some cool old classic compressors, which is uh, 175, a 176, and 177s. And that once I had my hands on those things day in and day out and could hear the harmonics and the beauty and the, and, and the greatness of it, I just, I got a little obsessed and I, I, I still audition a lot of gear. I'll buy a lot of gear on eBay. I'll listen to it. Yeah. And if I love, love, love what it does, it gets put in a rack. And if I don't, I just recirculate it and I sell it. And, um, and I've been doing that now for a decade. So the ridiculous wall of gear behind me, it's, you know, I've got an original gate stay level. I've got a Fairchild 175, 176s, uh, just lots of, of all my favorite stuff. Some really rare stuff like a, Yuri 1A, that's a, wow. a, a limiter that was um, made to broadcast propaganda speeches during the Cold War. It's the yeah. only military spec limiter that Yuri ever made. Um, and they only made it like 80 of them. So there's just not, you know, they came from a broadcast tower and it's like the world's greatest vocal parallel compressor. So because I have this world, I interface and, and work with a lot of the guys at UA and I work with uh, Acoustica Audio. I did some presets for the L-Ray plugin for Greg Wells. And, yeah. and I interface with a lot of um, technologists that model and, and kind of make our favorite digital counterparts of all this gear as well, too. That's awesome. What's, uh, if you had to turn around and look at the, the, the racks of gear, if, if you had a fire in a studio and can only take one piece, what would you take? Oh, the fair child. I hate to be cliche, <laughs> but like, the Fairchild. I yeah. waited my whole life, you know, and so that, but it's heavy. It's hard to carry. I mean, yeah, honestly, big, huh? I actually can tell you the truth. Like it, it's my hands, my dad's old bass is, you can see it up there. Yeah. And the old blonde Telecaster, that was my dad's, you wow. know? Uh, so there's two hands. I'd run out the door. Everything else can burn. You know, I mean, that's it. That's kind of what's left of my dad is in this room, you know, as far as his musical, uh, Ownings and 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 legacy goes. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And it, I think it, there's something really great to be uh, in the same room, working on the same gear, uh, getting to know all that stuff. There's there's a level of comfort um, in that. And I, it's been interesting with this little extra bit of time that we we have now. I've I spent some time and and been watching some of the pure mix uh, interviews with some of the different producers and engineers and, and just kind of just, Hey, let's just check out and see what everyone else is doing. And, and the latest NAM show, I sat in a couple of sessions and it was kind of neat seeing what everybody does. Like, you know, someone like clear mountain or something like that. And it's just, yeah, it's fun looking under the hood. It's just like yeah. sitting in on a session with another really great guitar player and sit and nerding out with them afterwards, you know? Yeah. But you find they're all just kind of, they've all kind of settled into their own space and they, and, you know, they like, they have their gear that they like and they have their workflow that they work in and, and they just have even, it down. Yeah. Even though a lot of us have 1176s, none of us hit it quite exactly the same. And so like everybody's room or gear or, or plugins, it is like a thumbprint. I mean, everybody really just kind of does their own thing according to their ears with it. So, uh, it is, th that is fascinating. And, and I, I get to, I've gotten to, you know, collaborate with some of those fellows and, and pick their brains and, and invite them over here. And I've gotten to work with some pretty high profile producer engineer, uh, folks. And, and 
it's amazing. You know, we, we all have a love for similar things, but a different use for it and just kind of a different way. People will just get their sound. Yeah. They'll just get their sound. Yeah. And you either like it or you don't. It, it was interesting. Yeah. I think it was on Pyramix. Uh, they had uh, one of those things where you, they'd send a song tracks to a bunch of engineers, mixing engineers. And uh, I think Greg Wells was one, I think. Um, just a whole whack, you know, maybe about eight, eight, nine, ten different guys. And it was amazing. I, I kind of waited until everyone finished their tracks and there was a little video with it. You could listen to the track at the end. And the one night I was just kind of fooling around. Let's just jump to the end of the video for each of these guys and listen to their song, their version of the mix, one after another. And I I was shocked how different each one sounded, um, like completely like different. And these Absolutely. were all AA guys, and they all have a completely different approach to it. And none of them Absolutely. are right. None of them are wrong. That's was, right. Music just, is so subjective. It's really interesting, you know. And I mean, it, it's I love. It, it's funny. I still think it's a good practice for me as a mix engineer. When I'm mixing, I have like this playlist. Uh, that's, that is my master fader. I, I always monitor through a, a master fader, like a, a track, an audio track at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, and that's my print track. So I print my, my two mix into there. Uh, but I can take it off of input and flip through playlists on there. And just like when I get halfway into a mix, I just listen to a wide array of other music. It doesn't even have to be relative. Like, it's just a, almost like a palate cleanse for eating. It's, you know, just swishing some lemon Perrier in your mouth and spitting it out and then going back to your mix for a second just to see how muddy you are, yeah. how defined, what your stereo field is like. Um, and it's like no two mixes are, are the same music in, 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 and its full approach from how the tracking engineer captured it in some of the same rooms, you know, to how the, the, the guy mixed it to the mastering engineer at the end. It's amazing to me, um, how there isn't a sound, you know, there, like, even if you're like really honed in on like a genre and you're, and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm mixing something for pop country, Nashville, blah, blah, blah. And you go to the top 10 yeah. and you listen to that top 10 you won't find two that even sound remotely similar as any kind of imprint or something to go for. Some are organic, some are dark, some are over, you know, really hyped, some are not. Some don't really sound very good to me. Some sound amazing to me, you know, and it's just a personal preference. They're all top tens. Yeah. So they've, they've made it across the finish line. So I stopped comparing inside a genre. So if I'm mixing a country track, I'll actually A, B, a bunch of great rock music or something different. Yeah. Um, if I'm mixing a bluegrass track, sometimes I'll flip through some Katy Perry and some Taylor Swift, Welcome to New York, something very electronic and just some something else. It's almost my reference now isn't isn't competitive for that reason that you bring up. My referencing is to shock me into some other palette cleanse spectrum so that when I flip back to what I'm working on, it's just a sort of a, a new, it's like fresh ears, man. Yeah. I, if I could have fresh ears all day, I, I learn, I do so much 
what I do when I, for the first half hour I come into this room is so effective. I wish I could bottle that up and have that all day. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like taking the first couple takes of a vocal track or something. It's yeah. It's yeah. And so, and, yeah. And that's why it's good to walk away and come back the next right. morning. And then all of a sudden it sounds, I just did that the other day. I just, it was later at night. I was working on this mix and it's like, I think it's pretty well there, but I know I have to listen in the morning. Sure enough, I came in the morning. It's like, no, it wasn't, wasn't a word. That's I it. it. Yeah, was. exactly. You know, and it's, it's like, so that's my closest trick I've found so far, which is the oldest trick in the book. And it's not a trick. It's you should, you know, referencing things that aren't relative that sound amazing to you. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you're mixing a folk record, listen to a heavy rock reference for a minute. You know, and then flip back in your speakers in your room to your folk track, and it you'll you'll give yourself little it, it, like it wears off. It's like a drug or an immunity almost. You know, like you get five minutes of fresh ears after that, not a good half hour like you do in the morning or, or whatever. But uh, you do it enough, and and you can kind of get through the the later part of your day. You know, usually I'll start doing that at around six or seven p.m., and that'll get me through to about nine p.m. and then I always check it in the morning and then I, I'm so effective in the morning. It's usually, I, cl I usually close mixes and only send them to the client after I've had a half hour in the morning to just, you know, very moderate level, just tweak everything. And then I send it out pretty confidently. And it's interesting too, because even probably what you're referencing to is probably still, even though it's completely different, it's probably still stuff you'd like. Right. Stuff that I think sounds yeah. great. Yeah. And yeah. I actually keep a few things that are really, really, really successful that I think sound horrible. Yeah. You know, just in the things so that I, it's be almost like I've tried to understand it. Like I have like two or three things in my playlist that to me, I'm shocked at how sort of muddy and undefined and over compressed and a little distorted they are. And they just, they don't sound good. And I feel like someday I might work on something. I, you know, I want to, I need to be humble about stuff. And, and there are things that I, I, that are constantly revealed to me that were maybe over my head. And maybe I feel that way about them. Like I, I keep them around because I, I'm hoping for a reveal or I'm hoping to understand them. <laughs> yeah. It, it's funny because I've been away from the studio for quite a bit and really getting back in and, and been seeing myself get back into everything I used to do my little bit younger years as far as how I listen and how I approach things. And, and I, I've always been a little bit thinking about the listener, right. As the person who gets it. And uh, even this for live sound, I've been doing a lot of live sound and, you know, you, you have a friend that comes out or someone who's not musical, but just enjoys music. They never leave talking about the mix. No, right? we do. I mean, we, that's, what we're talking. You and I do, but but the other thing that's interesting too is like I, I I give this perspective once in a while. We've been here for a decade. I've had hundreds of artists, musicians, A and R people, label people, managers, publishers. Um, nobody really has ever asked me what compressor I used on the lead vocal. Yeah, you know, or you know, what microphone I chose for the acoustic guitar, like you and I would in hindsight, but not as part of the building experience, like as audio nerds in interviews and things like that. But the people who were actually here participating in it, the most common thing I get told about the most common feedback is the candles oh, yeah. and the chandelier. 
Yeah. Like the it's mood. just about yeah. the vibe. It's yeah. about the mood. It's about, you know, the smell. This place is is clean and it's familiar and it's comfortable and it feels like a home. And yeah, that, and that's you know, probably the way you approach your mix too, right? You probably yeah. create it as I mean, I look at it like that. I don't always you know, I, I throw things on and here's my favorite compressor. This is my chain I like, but then I'll do something completely different. But it's more about how does it make me feel? Does yeah, it... absolutely. It's a mood. Yeah. I'm in the mood business. Absolutely. 100%. In fact, even as a musician, you know, like, you know, my playing a lot, a lot of players would comment, uh, you know, uh, not that I was a bad player. I'm a, I'm, I'm a decent musician, but everybody would comment about my tone. Yeah. Which was always a compliment to me. It's like, you know, and other guitar players would come to me and ask me about amplifiers and speakers and, Paul Chapman's got a pickup. I found him in the bridge of his guitar. And, and, you know, I used to fix Patico's amps for him for some guitar lessons, but I was always like really into the sound of things, you know, like, and, and how that kind of operates. And so as a musician, I would always associate that. And as a guitar player, if I need Brent Mason, I'll hire him. If I need, you know, a shredding, like virtuosic, musician on top of it absolutely i'm i'm not necessarily that guy i'm a mood guy i'll play a yeah. part i'll play a sound i'll accompany the song and um and that's work that's worked well for me in nashville i i mean because if you're like the hottest picker in town there's always kind of somebody that you know that's gonna come kick your ass at some point yeah but if you're you know a mood person then everybody everybody needs mood I decided to kind of be that. And it wasn't underachiever. I didn't stop practicing, but uh, I just changed my perspective into getting into sounds and parts. And, 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 you know, I might have a few more guitars and a few more amps and things to just go a little bit wider in that area rather than like a, a bag of chops on one instrument kind of thing. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So a couple more questions. I know we've been chatting for a bit and, uh, uh, you have to edit this down to like a 10 minute uh, podcast or something. I'll just speed it up. Then <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what did you say? A uh, little nerdy, couple things. Um, yeah, let's go. We're nerds, man. Yeah, That's why we've since, been talking so long. Yeah. Mix bus chain. Yeah. What's, do you have a go to mix bus chain? So I'm completely hybrid here. You know, like I am equally as much of an analog guy uh i'm a technologist i love plugins i love technology yeah. i have a record cutter from 1938 sitting that, beside yeah. an ipad running alpha software that won't be released till 2023 yeah. and i use it all it's it's um it, it's also cool to me so my mix bus i love sound theory golf Oz. It's kind of the first thing. Yeah. It's uh, it's like a miracle plug-in just for a little bit of clarity and punch. And and since the day I auditioned the trial, it's never been off my mix bus. It's the first thing that my my mix goes through. And then I like the Fab Filter stuff a lot. And so I have like just for more real precision, being able to grab at something and it's a, a, a bit more surgery, you know, on a mix. Yeah. I have a Fab Filter Pro Q that follows that, yeah. um, and then that signal goes out a hardware insert, yeah. 
It goes to the back of the room um, to a pair of, uh, it goes into a Burl B-52 converter. And then it circulates through an analog matrix, which is a Tegler switching box. And the cool thing about the, sw the switching box is it's all gold contact relays that can bring and order eight pieces of stereo gear in and out of the chain and store that chain as a plug-in in your session. Oh, that's cool. So I have some different mix bus character things. I don't, sometimes I use them all. Sometimes I use one compressor. Sometimes I use two. but in that Tegler box, uh, there's a pair of Mog Airband EQs that are hardware yeah. in my rack. There's an SSL uh, G-Comp bus compressor that's in the rack. Yeah. There is a Trident 1978 bus compressor that's pretty rare that the company Trident made that's really rock and roll. It's funny, compressors usually make things squishy. Anytime I put this thing on, it improves the transient. Somehow it takes mushy drums and makes them pop right. and yeah. tight without sounding like the mix is, is pumping and breathing. So yeah. it, it's a really fun, cool thing that I love a lot. And then, um, and then it goes to uh, the a Fairchild yeah. uh, 670. And then it returns to... Um, the another Burl converter. So there's like a loop. It's a complete hardware loop. Yeah. Uh, so then now it's back in Pro Tools. It's the third insert. Then the fourth insert uh, on the mix bus is kind of some, some limiters, almost like, you know, everything has got to go out pretty hot these days, you know. Um, I don't want to lose mixes with a first-time client. Yeah. I'm actually really conservative in that realm if I'm secure, you know, like if I'm definitely the guy mixing the record, I'm not going to slam the crap out of everything other than the daily refs that go out yeah. so that people don't panic. Um, but, you know, some of the more transparent limiter, interestingly enough to me, is a Massey CT5. I, you know, I don't, I can almost get that, you know, I like the little limiter thing on it. I like compressing it and driving the output of that, that unit a little bit. I, uh, David Bendith, uh, made a, a plugin called the wall, which is a really modern limiter, more rock oriented. And I have that. And these are choices. These are like in my mix template, these are all set to zero. So they're just passing audio. They're not really doing anything. Yeah. Um, and then I also have, a, a, an old fashioned waves L2, oh, yeah. you know, uh, as an option and, or a choice. Uh, and then I like, not because he's my friend, um, but I like Greg Wells waves offering and I have that on the two bus doing nothing, Yeah. but he's Greg Wells has got like a mix centric and it's a one knobbed little trick, Yeah. you know, and it just, it just clears things up. It adds a little bit of fun compression. It's just an, it's just a nice thing. So those last things that happen after the burl are all set to zero they're little grab bags, depending on the style of music, depending on how smashed I need to send something out. Yeah. Obviously, if it's like a bluegrass record, I'm not really, I'm using the Massey CT5, quite honestly, because it's sort of the most transparent, less destructive uh, pass through that I have to be able to bump up the level. Uh, if we're going for modern pop slamming, I'm just kind of tweaking up a combination of those things to kind of get it hot after the fact. So yeah, that's basically the whole mix bus. Cool. That's pretty awesome. 
if you had a piece of gear that you don't have now, that's on your list that you'd like to get, what would it be? Okay, so I still have my wish list, a pair of Spetrasonic 610 uh, mastering compressors. Yeah. Uh, more microphones. That list will never end. Yeah. I could have as many classic microphones as, you know, another U47 would be great. So I'd have a nice kind of, you can't stereo pair those things too well because none of them sound the same though. So, you know, the Upton 251s are pretty damn great microphones uh, for a modern mic with a classic vibe that are pretty matched, you yeah. know? So, uh, th that's on my immediate list. Um, Boy, yeah, like gear lust, it just goes, I could just probably cite off tons of stuff. I don't think it ever ends. And and so I, I audition a lot of stuff, and it's funny. There's, it's not all, you know, my favorite vocal de-esser that's in my vocal chain, I have a really elaborate vocal chain yeah. uh, with parallel stuff and all kinds of things, um, but it passes 100% through $149 Orban de-esser. Oh, really? Like the Orban de-esser to me is like the perfect thing it's a one knob little you reach for it it'll never lisp the vocal yeah it'll always just grab just what it needs especially for really sibilant girl singers um it, and so it's not all about fairchilds and 175s i you know i have a a complex uh limiter on my drum bus as a parallel and i talked to phil moore who makes retro instruments gear and i've got one of his 176s as well and Phil's a good friend, and, and he was like, so if you're a Compex guy, the same limiter chip, the same circuit, is in those old Shure PA mixers with the four knobs on it, the oh, little yeah. PF42s. Yeah. And you can find one for $89 on eBay. In fact, I found one, and then I had to buy a rack faceplate for it that was 150 bucks. So the <laughs> faceplate costs more than the, the piece of gear. Yeah. And yeah. it's my second parallel drum bus if there's ever a second drum kit uh, you know, like sometimes if somebody cuts like an old vintage kit in the verses and then a big modern kit in the chorus or whatever, and I can't really tell the difference. It really does do the same thing. My Compex, because it's a vintage thing, I, you know, traded gear for it or whatever. It's probably worth three or $4,000, but the sure thing I got for 89 bucks. That's awesome. If it's great, it's great. Yeah. And so this whole wall of gear behind me is stuff that I like. It, you know, there's no museum pieces over here. There's nothing... I'm not a collector. Yeah. You know, everything is powered up and fired up and, and Ethan and Greg and Alberto and the techs over here, we're firing signal and tone through everything. I have probably one of the largest spare tube collections in Nashville. Everything works. You know, we keep, keep it all working. And there are some things that to me don't make sense in here anymore. I, you know, I don't want to disc gear, but like, I feel like the SPL transient designer plugin does exactly what the hardware does almost to the point where I, I dimed them both and I could get them to null oh, yeah. between the plugin and the hardware. Yeah. And so why would I have four of them kind of designated that I couldn't recall yeah. when I can put as many of those plugins as I want. So as we move into the future, a lot of my plugins that I love are, OEK soothe on a vocal because nothing exists in the analog realm that does that. I just got that uh, a couple months ago. It's great. Yes. Sound theory golf boss mm -hmm. on the two bus. It's genius. It's computer. It's they, it only exists in the box. And then I feel like if I start to have any analog gear that 
that does get replaced by plugins, which is a lot. I've replaced yeah. a lot of stuff that I had in the, these racks three, four, five years ago with plugins. It goes away. And so my analog collection is becoming more and more eccentric and sort of specialized and, yeah. and unique sounding. Yeah, that makes total sense. Awesome. Uh, well, I know I've taken a lot of your time. Uh, I know we could probably talk for another 10 hours on, on nerdy gear stuff, but it's it's been a pleasure catching up with you. And as I said, uh, super happy uh, that you're, you know, you're doing what you love to do and, and doing really well at it. And you got an awesome spot there. And uh, I keep threatening to get to Nashville. I've been trying to come to town so many times and they, something always comes up. And uh, yeah, and I missed you the last two times. You came yeah. and played the rhyme, and and I think I had some sessions, or I was out of town and stuff. But we definitely need to connect and and just make a trip. Like when the world is safe again, and we all have free license, this is this is a a nice wake up call for us to all stay connected and and just do the things that we've got on our list for sure. So I'd love to hang out and have you here, and and uh, and and let's make a plan of that. We we will for sure. That's that's been the one great thing about this whole staying in place is that I've been able to reach out and connect with some people where you didn't have time to really sit and chat and, and have had some good chats and, and, and kept that conversation going. And, and that's important. I think everyone gets, you, you know, you've have your close friends and you've, you know, you get busy and, and you, you're trying to just at least keep in touch with a few of those really close friends. And then those ones that mean a lot to you, but you don't see all the time kind of, once a year you see them or they come through or you happen to say something on Facebook or something, but it's never the same as having an actual, you know, sit down conversation. And I miss that. No, I, I agree. And, yeah. and, you know, Nashville is great for that too, because eventually everybody comes here. So I get to catch up with all you guys because, you know, Shane and Stacy have come through and, and yeah. just everybody, you know, Woody's come through here. You're, you're coming through here all the time. So it's such a hub. I probably will see everybody more in Nashville than I would if I were living in Stratford at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's true, right? Um, I find I have a really good friend that that I used to do a lot of production work for, and we used to do these shows together, and he lived in Vancouver. And uh, he moved to Toronto, and I was like, awesome. Oh, I never saw him. And now yeah. he's moved to Winnipeg. I've seen him more times in two years of him living in Winnipeg than I did like 10 years of him being in Toronto. Well, cause everybody makes the effort now. It's like, Hey, yeah. I'm in Winnipeg. Of course yeah. we're going to like hang out. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I've got my call list of every city of my friends everywhere. And when I'm there, you know, uh, we make a point. Whereas I think if they were in town, we'd probably go a half a decade without visiting each other. Yeah, it's true. All right. I will let you go. And thanks again. Uh, it was awesome chatting with you and, uh, uh, if anyone wanted to follow you on the socials, what's the best way to to uh, stay in touch with you? So I'm pretty lucky that I'm the only Cal Muskie music maker. I got in early on all the domain stuff too. So like calmuskie.com is my website. Facebook slash Cal Muskie is my Facebook. Instagram slash Cal Muskie is my uh, Instagram. Um, Twitter slash Cal Muskie is my Twitter. Yeah, awesome. Uh, you know, addictionsound.com uh, is the is the studio's website so i'm associated with both of those things but uh yeah cal just k-a-l-m-u-s-k-y man type that into any anything and you'll find me awesome well good luck uh stay on the line for a minute we'll we'll say a proper goodbye but i just want to wrap up the podcast here and thanks again and uh this is going to be a great listen to a lot of people mm -hmm.